You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you, uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Paul, the, the author of this book, is giving an analogy. And, and so listen to it carefully, listening for the analogies to it's He's going to compare it to the Christian life. And he says, run in such a way as to get the prize. And he makes this analogy. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And that word in the Greek, the strict training, is just one word, egakaretamai. Uh, and it, it means um, strict chain, uh, training or self-control. Other translations just put self-control there. This idea of that he's going to talk about like beating his body, going into exercise, into training. Uh, and, and then he, he goes on and says, they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it. We, we, we go into strict training as Christians to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And so this obvious analogy to he's comparing his Christian life with someone who's training for um, some sort of Greek games and um, this idea of strict training, going into exercise, exercising your faith is what we'll kind of get into today as we talk about church history. But before we do so, let's pray. God, we do welcome you here. We thank you that, Jesus, you are the one who can teach us. You could teach us from the Bible, from the people, the Christians that have gone before us. God, use this message. Speak to, to our hearts and to our minds this morning. Allow us to be open to truth, open to who you are and what you have to teach us. God, we do love you and we praise you. And everybody did scream. Woo! Amen. All right. Wow. Um, here's a guy. His name is Simon Stylites. Has anyone ever heard of him? Maybe a few people have. He's kind of a back in the day, like early church history. He was a dude. His, his last name there actually isn't his last name at all. Uh, it's the Greek word for pillar. And so Simon, a pillar. Um, and he would literally sit on a pillar. He sat on top of a 60-foot pillar. Anybody afraid of heights? Yeah, so, so 60 feet is pretty tall. And he sat upon this pillar. He lived upon this pillar Imagine just spending a day atop of 60 feet, a little pillar. He spent 35 years of his life on a pillar, never came down. For the last 30 years of his life, he never came down from this singular, singular, sing, single pillar that he lived on. And so all his food, he had to bring up his food. Someone would put like some bread or something into a bucket and he would lift it up on a rope and he would eat. And then, of course, his waist had to go back down. Hopefully he had two buckets. That's what I'm thinking in my head at least. Uh, One for food, one for waste. And um, he lived there because he was a Christian and he wanted to exercise his faith. And we would obviously say, that's weird. That's beyond weird. That's strange. But why would he do that? Why would he live that way? And I want to assert that maybe it was the society that he lived in at that time that kind of created these circumstances for Simon to live on top of this pillar and be someone like that. So here's how he got there. Um, 
Simon Stylites uh, lived 390-ish to, to 459. That's his dates of when he lived. He lived in what is today modern-day Turkey. He withdrew to a monastery uh, so, somewhere in his 30s. Maybe like maybe I'm in my 30s. I'm 32. And so maybe somewhere in his 30s, he decided, I'm going to go live in a monastery. And so he lived in a monastery. And then he decided, and this monastery isn't getting away far enough. And so he erected just a little pillar, a six-foot pillar and he lived on that for a few years just living on this pillar and then he thought i'm not removing myself uh from society enough i need to live on an even taller pillar and and make my way uh, away from society exercise his faith um live in such a way that he's totally separate from his culture and somewhat in in dependence upon other people and for god and that's how he decided to live. And what's so amazing is that people came to visit him. People from all over heard about this dude. I mean, wouldn't you want to go see a guy if it had been like 30 years? Like, yeah, this dude has never left this pillar. And he's teaching. And so he, up atop of this pillar, 60 feet tall, he teaches crowds. And so people from all over would come and listen to his teachings. And he converted many non-believers. He would speak about uh, exercising your faith and, and being called apart, being separate from the world. And... Lo and behold, other people wanted to be like him, and other people erected pillars and then lived on pillars to be like Simon. Is that not weird to you? It's a little weird to me. Yeah, just the idea of like being so extreme that you would live on a small platform for, for years, for Simon, for, the, for 30 years of the rest of his life. In fact, one story is told that he had somewhat of like a, like a harness or a rope around his waist so he wouldn't fall off the pillar and then fall to his death 60 feet. Um, and so he had, imagine wearing a rope around your waist day after day. It's kind of like getting bed sores. Like the rope would kind of rot into your side and he never took it off for 30 years. And the story is, is that little maggots would eat at the flesh of <laughs> the rope and here's the story is that one fell out and and he said he picked it back up put it back in the rope flesh waist and said uh go ahead little one eat what the lord has given you <laughs> anybody want to see a picture look up at the screen i got a picture <laughs> gummy maggots mmm delish sorry i know you're eating breakfast so i'll move on the idea, though, is that I, w- I would assert that society at the time, and we'll, the, today's lesson is looking at society in the early church and some of the characteristics of what was going on at that time to produce a, a Simon style, like this guy, and then his converts that would also then become pole sitters. What was going on in society at that time? What can we learn from what happened then? Because in some ways, I'm sure you've heard the phrase that history repeats itself or history repeats itself with new little nuances, but we can learn from history. And so that's why we've spent a whole month, we're spending the month of February, uh, learning about church history. We think it's important. And so, um, yeah, so welcome to Mill Sunday School. If you are new, there's um, a little, I think it's just first-timer cards on your table. You can get one of those. If you want to fill it out, you can. You could give it to the people at the the curtain back there in, in the lobby when you leave. They'll give you a CD. It's got worship music on it uh, from our from the Mill Band, which the Mill happens on Friday nights. If you don't know that, you're more than welcome to come. It's more of a worship service every Friday night at 7. And, um, and so the CD that you'll get for free if you fill out the card is from that. And so we want you to have that as a gift. And so, um, yeah, 
This is the Mill Sunday School. Welcome. If you've never been here before, it is, we, it's not a service in such that we, we do liturgy or we do worship music. It's just plain teaching for about 45 minutes to an hour. And we've really gone, I think the direction we're, we're going and continue to go for Mill Sunday School is that this isn't Christianity 101. This isn't the very beginning stuff a new believer would would need to know. This is more maybe Christianity 201 or 301 in the in the college realm where we take things a little deeper. We go we're talking about church history. That's not a lesson for like a first-time believer. This is more in-depth than that. And so that's really what Mill Sunday School is all about. And I think I like that. You must like that if you keep coming and we joke that we are the nerds of the mill. Are you happy about that? I'm happy. In a good way. We're nerds. Okay. So let's talk about church history. Let's, um, let's go right into it. Last week, Jordan Haley spoke. He did a great job. I was uh, hanging out in Jamaica, just relaxing. And so uh, that's why I wasn't here, by the way. I'm back now to take on where he left off. And what, what Jordan talked about was uh, persecution. Were you here last week? Do you remember that? One of the big things he talked about was how persecution in the Roman Empire... Uh, was was done to the Christians because Christians were like doing treason by not worshiping the pagan gods or worshiping Caesar as Lord. And so therefore they were killed or martyred or put into Colosseums, the worst case scenario. Here's uh, an ancient um, uh, mosaic of a Christian being torn apart by lions and maybe a bear or something, I can't tell. Um, but this was the real life for Christians in the early church um, and in various areas. Christians were persecuted. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, that really went on. People really killed each other. In fact, there's uh, a deleted scene in the movie Gladiator. If you own it, maybe you can go watch it. It's very short. It's only like 20 seconds. But it's a scene of a group of Christians being uh, set into a coliseum ready to die by the hand of a lion or a gladiator. And that really happened. It's, it's part of our church history as Christians. It's like our ancestors had to die to, to proclaim the message of Jesus because by proclaiming Jesus and not a Roman God, they were held as um, people who were guilty of treason. And so I specifically want to talk about one dude. You could write down his name if you want uh, under persecution if you're taking notes. The Emperor Diocletian. And um, Diocletian lived from, actually didn't live, this was the dates up there that I want you to pay particular attention to, are the dates that he was an emperor, 284 A.D. through 305. And the 305 is what I want you to notice because it's after Diocletian that Christianity is very quickly legalized. And so you could almost say that like one day Christianity was totally illegal. The next day Christianity would be the religion of the emperor and it would be legalized. And very interesting dynamics that happened in the society back then. And so here's Diocletian, a picture of him. You can call him by his real full name, uh, Gladius Aurelius Valerius. Diocletianus, or you could just call him Diocletian, like me. Um, and there he is. He was an emperor of Rome for those dates. And he produced four edicts, these laws that went out all over the known Roman Empire at the time. And he was very anti-Christian. He wanted to uphold the, the empire. And he thought the way we should do this is by uh, persecuting or diminishing the Christians. Edict number one said that all... Um, all Christian books must be burnt. All Christian meeting places must be tear, torn down. No Christian conserve, 
can serve in the Roman army, and Christians do not have the same uh, legal citizen rights as a normal Roman. And so that's an edict that went out all over the Roman Empire. Edict number two in 303 AD um, was to arrest and imprison all church leaders. So if you're a church leader, you're a pastor, you are uh, maybe in our context uh, a pastor or a small group leader, any kind of leader, if anywhere in the Roman Empire you were to be put in jail. That was the law that went out, an edict that went out. The third edict was if a leader that got imprisoned wanted to be released, all that leader had to do was to uh, say they were no longer a Christian, burn incense to a Roman pagan god, and then that leader could be released from prison. Anywhere on the Roman Empire, if a leader was arrested, he could get out of prison by uh, burning incense, bowing down, saying he's not a Christian anymore. And the fourth edict, this is the one that I want you to pay attention to. It's happened in 304, one year after he was no longer emperor. It said this, that every woman, every man, every child, everyone in the entire empire must make a sacrifice to a Roman uh, pagan god. And if you, as soon as you do so, you're given a piece of paper that said that you had certified, that you have burnt incense, you've worshipped, a pagan god. And if you didn't have that piece of paper, you were either put in prison, punished, or killed. And so imagine yourself a Christian. You don't have a piece of paper because you didn't go down and worship a pagan god and burn incense to that pagan god. Roman guards or soldiers, centurions could say, hey, dude, where's your piece of paper? You could be like, uh, I don't have it. And they say, why not? And it's like, well, I, I don't know. I just don't have it. Well, come with me right now and you will burn incense to this Roman god, or you will be put in prison. And so this is an overall Roman edict that went out across the land of all the Roman Empire, saying that if you didn't have this piece of paper, saying that you presented sacrifices to the Roman god, then you could be punished. And that's in 304. In 305, the Emperor Diocletian uh, is the first Roman Empire ever to voluntarily retire from his position. He lived out his retirement in a palace on the coast, uh, tending to his vegetable gardens in 305. So he's no longer Roman Emperor, which left a power vacuum. There was assassinations, there was war, there was people battling over who would be the next emperor. And one of the dudes... Uh, up for grabs for the Roman imp- emperor was this dude, kind of our hero as Christians, uh, the emperor Constantine, or who, who would become emperor. And those are his dates that he was an emperor, 306 to 337 AD. And so the story is, is that Constantine is this, this general of a Roman army, and so he uh, wants to be emperor, and so he, there's a battle that takes place, between him and another guy, uh, Maximus, I think is his name. I Don't quote me on that. Something with an M, I believe. Um, over who will be the next emperor, uh, Constantine and his army, or the other dude, Max, I think it's Max, Maximus, and his army. And the story is, is that Constantine, before this battle takes place, looks up into the clouds and sees a Christian symbol and hears a voice audibly, not audibly, I'm not sure exactly. Here's a voice that says, in this sign... 
conquer. Have you heard this story before? It's the conversion story of Constantine. So Constantine looks up and sees this symbol. It is the Cairo. And so one little rabbit trail to, to know how we get the Cairo. Does, does anybody know the Greek alphabet? Maybe you were in a fraternity or sorority. You know the Greek alphabet enough to look up there and say what that word is. Anybody sounding it out? I hear it. Christos. Does anybody see that? Anybody? Greek scholars? Yes. Okay, good. So the word is Christos, the Greek word for Christ. And so the very two first letters um, to you and me, it probably looks like an X and a, a capital P, but it's not in Greek. It's the chi and the rho, the first two letters of the Christian, uh, the, the excuse me, the the Greek word for Christos. And so that symbol, the chi rho, maybe you've seen it before. That's a Christian symbol um, for Christos. Constantine looks up into the clouds, sees that symbol, hears a voice from God saying, in this sign, conquer. He says to his troops, put this symbol on your shields. And they go out in battle after seeing that symbol. They win the battle. Constantine becomes an emperor. And here we have the very first time in Roman history, a Christian emperor being an emperor over all of Rome. So here's Uh, a beautiful statue of Constantine. If you could see it at the very bottom, it says the phrase, in this sign, conquer. And there he is holding a sword that obviously also looks like a cross as the first Christian emperor. And so very quickly, in Roman history, in the society, Christianity, remember remember the dates? Right before, in 304, there was an edict that said you had to have a piece of paper that said you were burnt incense to to a pagan god. And then in 306, Constantine becomes the first Christian emperor. And so very quickly, we see the martyrdom, people, Christians being killed in Colosseums, to that fading away, to an official edict finally happening happening in 313 over all the land that says Christianity is officially legalized. So now you know how Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire. And what we're going to talk about now is what happened in, to the Christian society, to society at large, that could potentially create a Simon Stylites who would sit on a pillar. Maybe you kind of know where this is going. You've heard of this history before, but uh, let's get into it. Because as Christianity is legalized, the doors to Christianity go flying wide open, figuratively, of course. And so imagine one day Christians are being persecuted, the next day Everybody and their mom is becoming a Christian because the emperor is a Christian. Because in a few years, Christianity will be legalized. Because in a few years, Christianity will be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And we see this marriage happening, of course, figuratively, between the church and Rome, the Roman Empire. And so we see like a building like this, which of course wasn't built until the Middle Ages, but we see a building like this, one of the most uh, notable Catholic cathedrals in all of Rome. Anybody know what we're looking at? <laughs> I, heard, I heard it, but no one's like, yeah, it's St. It's Peter's Basilica that we are looking at. And, and so that, this is where the Pope speaks, or where the I don't know, does the Pope live in there, or does he just, is that just a, I'm not really sure exactly. Um, but that's St. Peter's Basilica. Anybody ever been there? Yes, oh, sweet. You should have yelled it out then. Do you recognize it? Um, 
But that's St. Peter's Basilica. Maybe you just didn't recognize the picture. Maybe this picture would do more justice of St. Peter's Square. And what's, why I show this is what's so interesting is that in the middle of that square is a giant obelisk. Can you kind of see that from the picture in the very center? is a, like a pole sticking up. And what's so interesting why I show this is because it, ha- it kind of shows this marriage between the church and the Roman Empire. Because here, here's this picture of Rome in all its glory. It, it was the Holy Roman Empire in the Middle Ages kind of built this thing. And so here we see uh, this basilica, this Catholic cathedral, this beautiful church cathedral. And in the center of it is this pole. And the pole is an ancient Egyptian obelisk that Rome inherited from Egypt when Rome conquered Egypt way back in the day. And so this, this obelisk is from the 13th century BC, obviously religious overtones of Egyptian gods, etc., etc. The center of this, you know, beautiful church cathedral. Does anybody else think that's a little weird? It is weird. If you think, I mean, why would, like, I'd be imagining, you're like, an Egyptian, like, obelisk in the back of our world prayer center or something. You're like, wait, shouldn't the cross be there? No, we got an Egyptian obelisk. No, no, that's just weird. Like, what happened? Like, this marriage between church and Roman Empire, that, that's what produces these things. And so I want to bring to you a word. I think it's on your notes. This word, it may look big to you, but I'm sure you've heard it before. Synchronization, maybe you heard it in a math class or a science class, because it's kind of a scientific term, this idea when two things are working at the same time or uh, operating, working, moving, they're synchronized. Um, they're, they're the two, in the religious term, if the Roman Empire and the church become synchronized, they kind of meld into one another. And this brings about what we, of course, now know as the Holy Roman Catholic Church. That's, that's why they're, if you've ever heard like Roman Catholic, you're like, why, what's the Roman about it? Well, it's Roman because, of course, it goes back to Constantine and this marriage between church and the Roman Empire. And so we get interesting things that maybe you do uh, are aware of or maybe you're not aware of. But the fact that we worship on, what day is it today? Sunday. Yeah, and, and I always thought as a kid, I was like, cause there was this like long stretch of, of Sundays where it was very sunny. And I think someone told me, it's like, why is it called Sunday? And it's like, oh, it's because it's always Sunday. And I was like, sweet. And I believed it for like a couple months until it like rained one Sunday. And I'm like, this is bull, man. <laughs> but it doesn't come because Sundays are usually sunny. It, it comes from the, the Roman Empire their day of worship into this old pre-Christian uh, worldview was that they would worship to the sun god. Sol is the Latin word for sun. Worship the sun god on Sundays. And so the whole Roman Empire is worshiping on Sundays. And so when Rome becomes Christian, but which day did the early, early Christians worship on? Probably Saturday, yeah. Because that's the day in which the Jewish... Uh, nation worldview worshipped their god the sabbat saturday and so when rome became christian they said well let's not just change the calendar in all our days of the week let's just worship jesus instead of the sun on sunday and so that's why we worship on sunday did you know that does that surprise you or scare you um i don't know uh, it's, it's just the way it is and the synchronization that came about. And, and we would say, as Christians worshiping on Sunday, I mean, this is Sunday school. I thought about changing the name Sunday school to S-O-N day school, but realized that would be extremely cheesy. And so we didn't do that. Um, 
But we as Christians worship on Sunday and we say, oh, it's the Lord's day, it's the day he resurrected. And it really doesn't matter what day you worship on, so long as you are giving a day to the Lord as this idea of the Sabbath, a Sabbath day of rest, not working, a day of worship, etc. So other things that you may be interested in is this guy, the Easter bunny, uh, speaking of like resurrection day, the day that we celebrate resurrection, how is it that there's an Easter bunny at the center of the resurrection day, and we call the very day Easter, which is after, maybe some of you know this, after the ancient god Ashtar, this god of fertility in spring, and kind of this idea of the sun is coming back from the winter, and we plant new things, and this idea of worshiping the newness of the Easter bunny. Like, how does the Easter bunny make it into the Christian worldview? Has anybody else ever wondered that? You're like, okay, I get it. Jesus rose from the dead. Wait, what's the Easter bunny doing again? I don't get that. Well, it comes from this idea of synchronization. And and it's kind of something we're not very proud of as Christians. And uh, it's just part of the tradition, part of the things that get passed along and synchronized together. As, as people say, you know, I don't want to give up my full beliefs in the Aster God. I'll kind of combine the Aster God with Jesus and we'll still do this bunny fertility uh, spring God thing and Jesus. And that's, that's how it happens. In fact, if you're interested in more of that, uh, two years ago, uh, we did a whole sermon series in the Mill Sunday School on the real Easter. And we talked about how uh, we get some of those things. And we went into a whole month of detail about that. You could podcast it. It's March of 2008. If you go to newlifechurch.org, you could look through those podcasts. But what, what happened here? And you can imagine being a Christian at the time when... Christianity is legalized. One day, you're like losing members. You're, you're, you're in your own threat of being brought to a coliseum to be killed because of what you believe. The next day, the, the emperor is a Christian, and he's going to legalize Christianity. And so you're like, wait, what is going on? And you see the world around you, the doors opening to churches, people rushing in, and, and they're, they're Christians, but maybe they're not like you. Maybe they didn't give up what you had to give up to be a Christian. Maybe in some ways they're poser Christians. Uh, excuse the name, of course, but what we mean is, is Christians that maybe haven't been tested, Christians that don't really exercise their faith. Maybe Christians, uh, maybe you know some of them, that only come to church on Christmas and Easter. They, they kind of say they're a Christian, they pretend they're a Christian in some circumstances when they come to church, but the rest of their life, the other 364 days of the year, they're not really Christians. They don't live like Christians. They don't really talk about Christianity or their beliefs. They don't, uh, they don't do anything but come to church on Christmas and Easter. Maybe they're poser Christians. I don't know. A better term, a term from our church history, would be lapsed Christians or apostate Christians. A lapsed member of a club is just a member that is no longer a member anymore. An apostate is has more of a religious overtones to the definition of that word. It says someone who who has given up the faith, who has renounced their faith, and they are now an apostate. So imagine those Christians that maybe were tested. They were brought to a coliseum. They were brought before a pagan altar and said, you worship this pagan god now or else you will go to jail. You will be killed. And so imagine those Christians that that bowed down, Christians that gave in and said, you know what? I I love my family. I love my life. I'm just going to bow down. I'm just going to burn some incense. And then I'm going to go back to life as normal. I'm not 
I'm not going to die right here, right today, because of my faith. And so imagine those Christians that bowed down to worship the pagan gods, gave up their Christian faith under the threat of martyrdom, and then they were you know, given up the faith, they were lapsed, they were apostate Christians, and that's, that's where they were for the rest of their lives. They had their life, they didn't give up their life, they, they, they lapsed, they gave up the religion in order not to die. So here's what I want you to think about, and maybe you could discuss this with some people around you, is what if you were in a church, okay? Imagine Diocletian days, the edict just went out that all, everyone in the entire Roman Empire must bow down and worship a pagan god, and you decide, I'm not, I'm not going to do that, but then the time of testing comes, and people in your church go and they worship a pagan god so that they don't have to go to jail or that they don't have to um, die right then and there. And so imagine yourself, imagine Christianity was just legalized. Would you let a lapsed believer back into your fellowship? Let me explain that a little better. So imagine you, and you could break up into uh, uh, little groups if you want, or, or two tables together, whatever, and imagine yourself as a little group of Christians, a church group. And before Christianity was legalized, maybe a member left your group and said, heck no, this is too dangerous for me. It's not worth it. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and be, uh, I'm going to worship these pagan gods, and, and that's that. And so they kind of give up the faith. But then Christianity is legalized, and that same guy or gal, whoever, wants back into the church. Would you, as the church, let that person back in? Yes or no? If you say no, well then why not? If you would say, yeah, we'd let them back in, what, you know, would they have to go undergo some testing? Would they have to get baptized again? What would you make them do? Does, does the question make sense at least? So you're the church, someone's left, and now they want back in because Christianity is now legalized. Do you let them in? Yes or no? Ready, get set, talk about it. Discuss. Go. All right, I, I'm sure I did not give you enough time because that's a very big question, but I wanted to talk about it very quickly amongst all of us so we could hear some good ideas. But uh, maybe we should get a vote, first of all. How many of you, I don't, you don't have to pick an exact side, but how many of you would lean towards, yes, we'll let them back in? And how many of you would lean towards, no, let's not let them back in? Nobody? Okay, at least somebody. It's like, nah, these guys, nah. Uh, and maybe and maybe you would just be uh, maybe just more hesitant. How many of you were very hesitant to let them back in? Is maybe a better way to to talk about that. Okay, so the major, major, main majority would let them back in. Some uh, hesitant, somewhat, and a couple of you would say no. Uh, we should not let them back in for whatever reason. So let's talk about it very quickly. Is there someone that would be bold enough to, to lean towards no? Let's not let them back in. Let's be very hesitant. Yes, up here. Noah. Okay. All right. I do not think it would be wrong for the church to go to that person and question why they are returning. What is different from before as to now? In their own life. In their own life. If they say, if they say, well, I, I really don't know, then I think, you know, the church could seriously question you know, why are you here? Yeah. Well, what are your intentions? But 
the person, if they say, I've repented, I've come back to Christ, done. I mean, okay. you can't question people's intentions. So, okay, as kids. good. So this idea of, like, why you want back in. It's like, oh, I want back in because it's the popular thing and everybody's come back in. You'd say, no, not so fast. Your faith was tested. You failed the test. You need to be more repentant to, to come back in instead of just, oh, yeah, I want back in the club. You need to say, yeah, I was wrong to have, to have not... Uh, f- to have failed the test and not been willing to go to prison or even to death for my faith. I, I repent of that, and now I want back in, is what Noah said. Um, who, uh, who would be less lenient? Who would be more lenient and more just like, oh, yeah, come back in to the club than Noah? Anybody want to share? Yes, this guy right here. See, um, I would say we should let them back in because... If God would accept them, this is what Aaron Stern's been talking about in the prodigal son on the mill on Friday nights, you know, is um, God accepted that person that left with open arms. I mean, he ran to that person. So it's like, who are we to do anything less? You know, I mean, if God accepts them, who are we just judge them otherwise? And so, um, I mean, and uh, as we talked about here at my table, we lapse every day. I mean, we sin, we fall every day. But yeah. God still accepts us with open arms. And so, yeah. And so that's really the gist of what I wanted to share. So, Okay, good. Noah, do you have something more to share? All right, let's, let's get a little d- debate, a friend- friendly debate, a-, a discussion going on. All right, but somebody's conduct. Do- I'm not trying <laughs> to make out talk. with it. Let him talk. Golly, somebody's conduct, I'm not saying that you are saved by works at all. I am not right. saying that. But somebody's conduct does reflect their faith. And if they are not walking by their faith, then you as a church, according to Matthew 6, do have cause to challenge them on their faith Yeah. by their acts and their obedience. Yeah, so if someone in the church isn't living like they should be living in the church, then you have the authority to... It's like, hey, maybe we should remove you from this church. I think of like 1 Corinthians where it talks about a man who is sinfully acting with his own mother. Do you know that passage? It's pretty like, oh my gosh, that really happened? Is it yes? And to kick him out of the church that he may repent and come back. Yes, last word from Kenny up here at the front. Uh, I'm more on the side of like, uh, let let them back in. Yeah. and uh, my question would be, what would the view on Paul be? Because Paul, as Saul, was persecuting the church, killing people of the church. His right. reputation throughout the known world was, let's kill Christians. Right. And then um, he, I mean, he was converted. And like you even see the reaction of some of the church leaders when he first shows up to Jerusalem. It's like, whoa, he can't let this guy in the door. Right. You know, and, and Peter does. And so I guess my question is like, that's, you know, like they were all Jews with, with Saul, and then all of a sudden they became Christians, and they didn't want to let him into their club because of his reputation and what happened and right. his stance. I don't know. It's similar, not maybe not the same situation. Yeah, no, that's but, a good analogy. But it's interesting to think about that too. Yeah. So I think we're. I think I'm hearing at least that we're in somewhat agreement that yes, if there's true repentance, true transformation, then of course 
people should be allowed back in no matter what. Even if they rejected Christianity and burnt incense to a pagan god, no matter what they did, what mistakes were made, if they're truly repentant then the, and they're transformed, then they should be welcomed back in. Yes, and so from there, let's move to kind of the other side of this thing that many Christians, because what it meant to be a Christian was suffering and persecution, etc. Those bad things of like, we have to exercise our faith. We need to be willing to die for our faith. When Christianity is legalized, and as I refer to them as the poser Christians or the lapsed Christians, apostates, come into the church. And when Rome begins to synchronize with the Rome, with Rome and the church and um, People are worshiping the sun god and Jesus and, and synchronizing some of their things and saying, oh, let's turn the resurrection day and, and synchronize it with this worship of Aster and this worship of the spring goddesses and fertility. That kind of stuff going on. Then a group of Christians, many groups of Christians, kind of said, to heck with this. This isn't real Christianity to us. Let's move out. And this movement is called the monastic movement. And that, that, that phrase is in your notes. It's the last term there that we're going to talk about today. Monastic movement. And the word uh, monastic comes from mona or mono. What does that mean? It means one or alone or single. And so people that decide we're going to be off and do our own thing, either be totally by ourselves or be separate from the world, um, you may have heard it as the ascetic movement, which goes back to this, this Greek word of exercise, which maybe comes from the idea that we should exercise our faith, the passage that we read today as we began Sunday school. And so we have this monastic movement of people leaving the cities, people leaving the synchronized Roman church uh, thing that's going on and saying, no, the real church needs to exercise their faith. They need to be the serious Christians. We need to move out and do our own thing according to the Bible, according to what we know to be true, that, that, that according to them, they believe that suffering had to be involved to be a Christian, just like it was involved with Jesus. The early disciples were martyred, just like it was right before Constantine legalized Christianity. Suffering and Christianity went hand in hand. And so people moved out of the, the cities into these uh, um, monasteries, into these places, kind of being led by this guy, St. Anthony. He is given credit for, however, I kind of wonder if he really was. There had to have been someone else before him, but he is given credit as being the very first monk. Uh, that's St. Anthony. He lived 251 to 356, right around this time when Christianity was legalized. And he's at least given credit for being the first monk in the monastic order that he would move out from society. I think one of his quotes is on the back of the your skillet. Uh, you could read that later. Uh, but but St. Anthony, when he was 20 years old, heard a sermon preached on Matthew 19:21. This is Jesus saying, uh, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And so little Anthony, as he's 20 years old, maybe the age of some of you in here, decided, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do exactly that. Sell all my possessions. In fact, Anthony's parents had died, given him a large inheritance. He gave away all of his inheritance, sold everything, gave it to the poor, and went out and lived in the Egyptian desert. He lives in what is today Egypt, lived in the very hot Egyptian desert for the rest of his life. 
at the age of 20 all the way. He lived until he was 105 years old. That's very long by today's standards, extremely long by the ancient standards. And so he lived, some, at least according to lived a long life, lived somewhat healthily um, out in the desert for many years, totally by himself. And then people would come and visit him. And, and he talks about you know, trying to be free of temptation, free of, of the world. And Anthony, there's many paintings of St. Anthony, the temptations of Anthony, if you're kind of into art. Uh, many artists have tried to depict St. Anthony being tempted. Here's one that's kind of nice and friendly. It looks like little goblins coming and like tapping on his shoulder. Those are demons uh, tempting St. Anthony because St. Anthony talked about how that speech, hearing, and sight were all conquered in the desert. Living by yourself, totally alone, no one to talk to, no one to listen to, no one to look at, uh, that those things were conquered in the desert. But for him, the last battle was fornication and this battle with lust. And he said that at night he would have visions and dreams of demons and lust coming to him. And he said, uh, I quote, that was the hardest part of being a monk for him is these dreams and temptations of lust. And he was not considered a fanatic, someone that's just like crazy and lives off by themselves. He was considered very warm, very humble, uh, very full of wisdom and moderation. And he led this movement of people that are like, yes, I want to go out and live like St. Anthony. He's doing it right. Here we are synchronizing our Christian beliefs with this Roman worldview and their gods and their things. I, I want to be separate from that and go live like Anthony. And so, so many of them did, moved out. He converted many followers, would, would have monasteries, set up different monasteries in place. People would go out from the cities and live in these places to be real Christians. And so the question that, that is like, there's a good part of that. As, as things are, you know, the church and society is getting more and more secular and things are happening that we're not happy with. And it's like, yeah, that's totally synchronizing our, you know, what should be with what, you know, society says. You know, maybe we should move out and, and go do our own thing and exercise our faith. But the question is, what about the world that's left behind when the, the real Christians, the, the, the Christians that really want to exercise their faith, move out of the world and go f- find their little secret societies to live in? And maybe this, this idea that, you know, history repeats itself or that we can at least learn from our history. I almost wonder if I was talking to someone who's working on a master's degree and they're, they're doing a project and studying this phenomenon of why Christians are leaving kind of society and making their own things like homeschool associations where they take their kids out of public schools and we'll, we'll school them over here. Or they'll, instead of like living in a complex of houses and paying HOA fees, it's like, well, let's do a Christian complex of houses where to be a, a house owner, you, a, you have to be a Christian. And we have our own HOAs. And we have our own park inside of our own little housing association. And so let's not pay taxes to go to the schools. Let's not pay taxes to go to the public parks because we have our own schools and we have our own parks. And we're kind of removing ourselves. At least there's this t- tendency uh, amongst many Christians to like, yeah, that's, what's, that's what we should do. We should remove our children, remove ourselves from the world because the world is synchronizing beliefs and, and there's there's things that are not biblical about the way society is going and so we should remove ourselves and, and make our own secret club but then the question if it's so extreme that you have people totally separating themselves and living in a secret society uh, outside of 
the bigger society. What about the world? Aren't we you know, called to be salt and light to the world? What happens to the world when Christianity leaves it? And some historians actually say the reason why Rome fell, one of the many reasons why Rome fell is because very uh, devout Christians and this, the, the, the real Christians, I keep using that in quotations, uh, the very devout exercise, their faith Christians, had removed themselves from society. And so that's why Rome fell, because there wasn't this foundation of good Christian teaching. I mean, here's this empire saying we're a Christian empire, and yet all the, the real Christians, the professional Christians, the Christian leaders, have removed themselves from society, leaving Rome and the Roman church to be very syncretistic. And so that's the idea of kind of what I want to leave you with. And very quickly, a couple ideas for a conclusion is that I think Christianity is not a secret club. It shouldn't be a secret club. We, we should be this analogy of being salt and light to the world around us, I think matters very much. Um, this idea that if we just totally remove ourselves forever from the world, it's like, well, you know, the world needs Christian influence. We are called to go make disciples, baptize them, etc. And so totally removing ourselves and making a secret club is not what we are called to do. But at the same time, um, there is, and well, well, the next point here is the, the disciplines. We should be doing disciplines and the disciplines of exercising our faith for instance, prayer, fasting, reading the Bible, um, maybe having spiritual retreats where we, we are by ourselves. These things are all good things, but they're not for show. And so I think of someone like Simon Stylites of elevating himself on this big pillar for everyone to see. Um, isn't, isn't he kind of getting the credit for doing what he's doing? Shouldn't we be, like Jesus said, you know, do your, uh, do your disciplines, do prayer in secret so that you'll be rewarded by your heavenly father don't do them for show and so we are to exercise our faith but not for show finally this is the third point is that we should celebrate the disciplines and there's a book called uh, the celebration of the disciplines uh, by richard foster which is an amazing book talks about how we shouldn't you know do the disciplines out of oh we have to do this to be saved but we should celebrate knowing that the disciplines, prayer, fasting, reading our Bible, doing the things that, that are exercises of our faith, make us better believers. And we should celebrate that, not saying, not to doing it for show, not doing it for um, some sort of things like, oh, we have to to be saved. That's not how salvation works. But we celebrate them and we do them to live a life devoted to Christ. And so it's with that idea that I'll leave you. And I just wanted to read, reread the passage that, that we started this morning off where Paul encourages us all to, to run, to, to win a race as for uh, a heavenly prize that will last forever. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow uh, to my body and make it my slave. He makes his body his slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified, disqualified for the prize. Let's pray. God, we do, we do thank you and we praise you for 
this lesson of, of church history of how, how it is that society can, can, can be synchronized with, with religious beliefs and how, how that is not of you, how you do call us to be apart from this world, but at the same time we are called to be salt and light. God, would you show us this balance between living in the world and not being of the world? God, enlighten us. Show us the way to walk. Show us in our own places of work and school how, how you want this to look in our life. God, enlighten our path. Let us follow you. Let us exercise our faith for your glory here on earth. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. You're dismissed. Go in peace. Peace out. <laughs>